That's Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew. They're at the end of the Old Testament. It's so good seeing all these young people on the front row. It's so good seeing these young people on the front row. Amen. I was going to get Asher to go sit up with the boys tonight, and there's no room for the boys. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to get a bigger front row. We've, we've got to get our kids in church. Culture is trying to indoctrinate them, trying to brainwash them. We've got to do the same. We've got to be even higher in what we do. And so I'm telling you, get them on the front road. They're going to act up. I, I can tell you, I got a few um, uh, attitude adjustments whenever I was a kid for misbehaving on the front row. I don't know if Brother Brian's here tonight. I remember I shouldn't admit to this, especially in this setting, but we were playing tic-tac-toe on the front row. Now, I was a little guy, but even still, during Wednesday night Bible study with Brother Patterson, and I remember Dad looking over at me and, he caught my eye, and I quit playing tic-tac-toe, but that didn't take away the, the punishment that came afterwards. So there's going to be some, some tic-tac-toe playing, hopefully not tonight, but we've got to get our kids just wrapped up in this so that whenever they sing those songs, that, that they connect to the blood of the Lamb, that they connect to those things. I want to say tonight it's going to be something a little bit different. I, I've, never, I've never done... Um, what I'm going to do here this evening. I read a book about three or four months ago, and, and a story in that book just so gripped me. And obviously, I was finishing up um, Gideon, and I, I haven't ever just had a story like that to grip me that felt I felt like I needed to preach. And so I just kind of let it go over in my spirit. And over the next several months, I told the Lord, okay, if when I finish Gideon, if I still feel this urge from you that I'm going to go into this and, and preach this message. And so this is a little bit different for me, but I, y'all all pray for Brother Clay as I'm preaching. I've got, I've got so many references. It's going to be tough for him to keep up, tough for you to keep up. But I will tell you, go ahead and throw a ribbon in Matthew 27, Isaiah 53, and John 2. We're going to be all over this word here tonight. Even though there's a story that goes alongside, I, I want you to know about the blood of the Lamb. So with that in mind, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse number 10, it says this, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth For his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him who is at him, it's Jesus Christ, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Let's pray over the word. Speak, O Lord, plant your truth so deep in us, God. Shape and fashion us into your likeness, Lord. You know these days. You know, God, that we are living in an untoward generation in perilous times, as your word says. God, we have got to be so firmly rooted in you, Lord. Oh, God, don't let us just stay at the shallow end of the pool, God. Let us go into the deep end, as Brother Chad preached this morning. God, let this word, Lord, let it go just... God, in, in sync, Lord, with exactly what you spoke to us this morning, God, plant this word deep in us. God, it's in your precious holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. Tonight I want to preach to you a sermon from the synagogue. A sermon from the synagogue. It's January 1933. It's a 43-year-old Austrian that's just been named the Chancellor of Germany. His power is not going to exist in the full form that we remember it for until three months later when the Enabling Act was passed in response to a communist setting the German parliament building aflame. While his power hasn't been fully recognized yet, his, his anti-Semitism and the rhetoric that has been fully realized. 
Since Germany's defeat in World War I, the, the Versailles Treaty was passed, and, and Germany has fallen to economic and societal hardship. And so they tried to find a culprit, and that culprit was the Jews. According to, to them, Jewish workers during World War I, they instigated strikes, and the military didn't have the equipment that they needed, and so that was the reason that they lost the war. Never mind the fact that, that German Jews disproportionately outnumbered the pure Germans on the front lines in battle. Facts like that weren't helpful in assisting Hitler to foment his anti-Semitism across Germany. By 1933, his autobiography, Mein Kampf, which clearly outlined his anti-Semitism, had been on the bookshelves for eight years. His political rallies as he went across Germany had, had turned the nation against the Jews, God's people, and public persecution was becoming more and more commonplace. Jewish homes, places of business, and even their synagogues became easy targets for Nazi vandalism. Wilhelm Busch was a pastor in the German confessing church during these calamitous days. And he tells the story of one such synagogue in his memoirs that were entitled Christ or Hitler. The tragic yet redemptive end of this synagogue took my mind straight to Zechariah 12 and to John chapter 2. Throughout Scripture, we see that Jesus, he, he is both described and describes himself in architectural terms. He's the chief cornerstone in Matthew 21. He's the sure foundation in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, he says this. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. Even his disciples, when Jesus first said this, they were unsure of what he meant. But after that glorious resurrection, they saw that connection. Jesus Christ was the temple. He was their refuge. We've sung so many songs tonight about God being our refuge, about God being our strength, about God being our everything and here is Jesus saying, I'm the temple, and I'm going to be torn down. But in three days, it's going to be raised back up. He was the refuge that would both atone for and cover their sins. And so these passages of Scripture, they gave new life and new meaning to the story that Bush told of this Jewish synagogue. The splendor, the persecution the execution, the shame, the safety provided by this synagogue, it takes us all the way back 2,000 years to a place of our refuge, Calvary. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12, 2 through 4, looking unto Jesus. Look at him, church. The author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, church, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Notice in those two verses there's no qualifiers on when we're to look at Jesus or when we are to consider Jesus. Satan wants to make your mind weary. He wants to make your mind faint, as those verses say. And I would argue that we like to say, you know what, nobody's ever had it worse than me. And 99 times out of 100, that's just simply not the case. But... 
I would say there's no time in human history where Satan, who has been described as the prince of the power of the air, that we have just the onslaught of media. There, there are endless avenues, or, or should I say streams, that are used by Satan to wage war against our mind. You can stream TV, you can stream the news, you can stream sports, movies, music, podcasts. You can stream until your spiritual consciousness streams right out of your ears. We have been, in some ways, streamed to death. And so, this is why we've got to look unto Jesus This is why we have to consider him that endured this great thing. This is why that that cause of consecration, like Brother Chad preached to us so powerfully and so anointed this morning, that's why we've got to hear those things, church, because Satan is is coming against us every day, and we're worried about a submersible and the Titanic, and then we're worried about the coup going on in Russia, and and, and God only knows what tomorrow is going to bring, and we have it coming into our minds and coming into our minds, and I need to be focused on these things. I need to be thinking about these things. You can be aware, but please, church, look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus. That's the remedy. Every chance you get, not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday. And so, in the story of this synagogue, I want you to look to Jesus. I want you to look at the endurance that he displayed on the cross. I want you to consider these great scriptural truths that are applied to our lives through the saving new birth message. This synagogue, what it is, is it's just another illustration. It's just another opportunity to do what Jesus commanded us to do in John chapter 6 and verse number 40. These are Jesus' words. This is the will of him that sent me. What's the will? That everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. What a promise. He said, I will raise you up in the last day. But what do you have to do? What's the contingency that you have to follow? Well, you've got to see Jesus. How are you going to see him if if your face is buried in your phone or it's buried in these new Apple virtual reality? How are you going to see Jesus unless you're looking at him, unless you're singing about him, unless you focus your life on him? He said that you've also got to believe. You can't just see him. You've got to believe in him. There were many who saw but didn't believe. We've got to believe in him. But then there's another step because James 2 says that that even even the, the demons believe that there is one God. We've got to also obey him. We've got to see him. We've got to believe him. And we've got to obey him. And so this story that I want to tell you here tonight, it's going to unfold in three phases. And the first part of this story Bush, he, he doesn't really definitively say what city that this synagogue was located in, but he does make several statements about the synagogue itself and several statements about where he had lived in the past. And so I, I was able to, to hopefully figure out that that synagogue was in the German city of Essen. And it was constructed in 1913. Brother Clay, he's got a, a picture there for you. That synagogue was constructed in 1913. It was a magnificent domed structure made of solid stone. Bush visited that synagogue at one point in his life, and this is what he said about this experience. There must have been a rich Jewish congregation once to have built such a magnificent synagogue. It's a huge domed structure made of gray natural stone. The glory inside matched the wonderful exterior. You could see that a great artist had designed and built this house. Even non-Jewish women and, and men traveled to this synagogue just to look at it, just to see the splendor that, that it displayed. And the inside was, was even more beautiful than that elaborate exterior. Brother Clay's got a, a picture of that. Can you imagine? That was built in 1913. 
built in 1913. What, what an amazing experience it must have been to visit that. The, just the, the audible gasp that, that you would have whenever you walked into that, that magnificent building. It must have been like those, that reaction of those who when they first laid their eyes on the Messiah. Because ever since the fall, we had been waiting for the Savior God promised that that there was going to be a lamb that was going to come slain before the foundations of the world. And so the prophets begin to foretell of his coming. And the Psalms begin to give us glimpses of what that redemptive work of Jesus Christ was going to look like. But nothing could fully prepare them for whenever they first saw God in flesh. Simeon and Anna, they they longed to see. God promised them, said, before you die, Simeon and Anna, you are going to see the Messiah. And so in Luke chapter 2, we see what their reaction was. Simeon said this in Luke 2 and verse 29. He said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. He said, I can die a happy man now, according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people a light to lighten to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. Simeon, he says, I can die a happy man. I can die in peace now. Why? Because I've seen the salvation of God in this little baby here. So... Anna, she has the exact same reaction. The Bible tells us that, that as after she saw baby Jesus, that, that she went all throughout the temple. There's a Savior. He's here. Well, where is this Savior? Is he some great king? No, it's that little baby. You see that baby there? That's God manifested in the flesh. It changed Simeon and Anna. John the Baptist, he has an equal reaction there in John 1 and 29. We see his reaction to seeing Jesus Christ the next day. John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Whenever somebody has their mind fixated on Jesus Christ, whenever you see him for the first time, it's going to, oh, it's going to change you. Oh, it's going to do such a great thing in your life. Why? Because you've been thinking about him. You've been waiting for his coming. We are waiting for his second coming. Can you imagine what that's going to be? We've heard it preached. We, we talk about it all the time. The Lord's coming back. The Lord's coming back. Can you imagine what it's going to be like whenever we see God come back? Those who are unencumbered by the cares of this world and have their eyes set on Jesus, whenever they see him, their lives are changed in an instant. So let me ask you, what are you pursuing? What are you going after? What do you really want to see? Well, what captures your attention on a daily basis? Remember Hebrews 2, look on Jesus, consider Jesus, give him your thought life, give him your prayer life, give him your daily devotion, give everything to Jesus. Because whenever you finally see him, whenever you finally experience the fullness of his presence and you come in here on a Sunday night and you've been fighting the devil all week long and you've been thinking about Jesus, my Savior, and you come into here and you begin to feel the presence of God oh it's going to do something to you why because you've been expecting him you've been wanting him you've been longing after him look to Jesus just as the Germans they they came from around the nation they they traveled to visit the synagogue of Essen so too did travelers come to see the newborn king the shepherds, they, they came to visit him first. The magi, they came from faraway nations. All wanted to come and see the Messiah. Though Those three wise men, they didn't know the details of the future of that child. They didn't fully understand the incarnation. They didn't fully understand the crucifixion and and, and the atonement and what that all meant. But they just said, I've got to go see Jesus. There's a star. God's been talking to me. I've got to follow after him. They didn't know that redemption for mankind was going to come from such unlikely means. And so as Jesus grew and his ministry became more widely known, the masses began to follow after him. 
The word multitude is found 77 times in the Bible and 70% of those instances are found in the Gospels where the multitudes are following after Jesus. Just, they're just coming after him in throngs. There's just so many people. I want to see what he's doing. I've, I've heard of these healings. I've heard of these, these demons that have been cast out. I've got to see him. I've got to follow after him, church. We've heard all the things that he has done. We can't let those, those, those men and women of that day, they fought, they gave up things and just went after him church we've got to do the same not all would be converted many came just to see the show many would leave him as we saw in John chapter 6 but all were drawn to the spectacle of Jesus this isn't the central theme of what I'm trying to say here tonight but I want you to know that God doesn't want a multitude he wants a church he wants a church. Many Germans, they, they went into that synagogue, but they didn't truly believe God's word. They were just there purely out of curiosity. Hey, did you see that, that great interior? Did you see that architect, what he built there? You want to go look at it? Yeah, sure, let's go look at it. Christianity is not a spectator sport, church. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Here's what Jesus said. He said, you got to pick up your cross and you got to follow me. We're not here to watch the show. We're not here just, just because we we're, we're just have something to do on Sunday night. No, we have picked up a cross and we said, whatever is going to happen in this world, no matter how dark it gets, I'm picking up that cross and I'm following after Jesus Christ. So get off the bench. Go deep into the river of life. You didn't get to hear Brother Chad preach this morning. You need to go listen to that message. Go deep into the river of life. Give your life for this cause. Those who were there to see, to follow, to believe in Jesus, they were going to be changed forever. But there was a second phase that begins to come along because we know that everyone didn't feel the way that we feel about Jesus. The Nazis, they, they hated that synagogue and everything that it stood for. And so too did the Sanhedrin hate Jesus. And so as Hitler's power became more fully matured, his anti-Semitic speech became anti-Semitic legislation. And so Jews were forbidden from naming their children Jewish names. You can't name your son David it's got to be something more German. You can't name your daughter Sarah. No, it's got to be something more German. They, they had to give up their passports. They were invalidated so they couldn't travel. They, they had to wear that infamous yellow star. They were prohibited from marrying any other German. They couldn't vote. They couldn't hold political office. And the noose grew tighter and tighter over those Jews until the tragic night, November the 9th, 1938. In response to the assassination of a German embassy official in Paris by a Polish Jew, a young man, he was only 19, Nazi officials mobilized their base and launched a night that became forever known as Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. And during this night, rampant violence was inflicted on the Jews. Their, their businesses, their homes were ransacked. And during that night... And the following days, over 1,400 synagogues were burned and looted. The synagogue in Essen is included in this number. Late in the evening, November 9th, the local officials went into that synagogue and they poured gasoline all through those pews and, and they set that building on fire. And bystanders, they came by just to watch it burn. The firemen came by and they, they were there only to protect the buildings that were beside that synagogue. The masses had been stirred into a frenzy by demonically empowered men and they had succumbed to the base desires of their flesh. That once beautiful synagogue with its ornate interior, it was now in ruins. But it still stood. It still stood it was burned out. That, that, that beautiful picture that you saw before, was that was what it now was. The stones were burned, and yet they still remained intact. It was also late in the evening that, that our temple of refuge was accosted by vengeful men, 
Jesus had developed quite the following. And, and, and the religious community of that day, they began to be, they felt that, that Jesus was blasphemous, that he was coming against that He was upsetting everything that they had set up. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees began to develop a plan to silence his voice forever. So late one night, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they executed their evil plan and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Just as the synagogue in Essen did not speak as it burned, neither did our Savior speak. Why? Because he knew that his time on earth had been fulfilled. He knew that his mission was to deny the will of the flesh, not sinful flesh because he was sinless, but he was now to accept the will of God. Jesus Christ, our Savior, fully man, fully God, fused together, accepting the punishment of my sin so that he could become my Savior. They accused him, the Sanhedrin did, of blasphemy, but they didn't have the power to kill him. So they sent him before Herod, and they sent him before Pilate. And the crowds that were filled with the exact same bloodlust as those men and women on November the 9th, 1938, in Essen, Germany, that same bloodlust, that same demonic spirit, they shouted out, crucify him. So they nailed him to a cross. They hung him up for all to see. A public spectacle. Come watch the synagogue burn. Come watch the, the king of the Jews, they said. Come watch him die. A public spectacle. The crowds, they, they gathered and they watched. Isn't this the man who healed the sick and, and raised the dead? Isn't this the, the most beautiful building in our city? Wasn't this the man who said that he was the great I am? In the weeks and months succeeding Kristallnacht, the Germans, they were embarrassed at the sight of that burned out building in their city. It was an eyesore to them. They wanted to rid themselves of any remembrance of that old synagogue. They, they had gathered together and said, we're going to tear this thing down. But Hitler had decided that he was going to go to war both on the western front and then on the eastern front against Russia. And so those plans were put on the back burner. But what they did is they just heaped scorn on those Jews that were still there in Essen. And they mocked them about their destroyed synagogue. And as Jesus, as he suffered on the cross... We see the same shame, the same mocking voices that came against him. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Look there in verse number 29, Matthew 27 and 29. The Roman soldiers, when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they, they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they smote him on the head. Go down to verse number 39. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. Verse number 41, Likewise also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, He saved himself. He saved others, but himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and then we'll believe him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Verse number 44. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. The soldiers, the crowd, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, even the thieves crucified beside him, they all mocked him. But... Even though he had the power to do so, he never called down judgment on them. He simply said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm teaching in 1 John in our hyphen class. And did you know that in 1 John the Bible says, and this strikes me to the heart, the Bible says that those who are Christ followers, that they should walk also as Christ walked. Do you know what that means? 
Justin, do you know what that means? That whenever men and women revile you, when the soldiers revile you, when the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and, and even those who are there with you, when they revile you, what do you say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How is that going to be in your life? You're going to have to be filled with the Spirit. Our suffering Savior reviled by men, but He still stands. He still stands as the foundation of righteousness for all the, the glorious prophetic proclamations of Isaiah. Isaiah 9 and 6, he talks about the incarnation. He's wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. What a great passage of Scripture that is. We also have a prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Turn there, Isaiah 53. When I came in this morning from Sunday school, Grandpa was reading Isaiah 53. I'm telling you, Isaiah 53, somebody needs to memorize that, that passage of Scripture. Look, look at how Isaiah describes Jesus Christ. In verse number 3, he's despised and rejected of men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is despised and he is not esteemed. Verse number four, he is stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse number five, he is wounded and bruised and chastised. Verse number six, iniquity was laid on him. Verse number seven, he was oppressed and afflicted. Verse number eight, he was cut off and stricken. Verse number 10, he was bruised and he was grieved. Verse number 11, he was the bearer of my iniquity. So much injustice occurred at Calvary. And yet he did not speak. He did not speak. What is Isaiah 53 says that, that, that he was brought as a lamb before the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is dumb and he didn't even open his mouth. He didn't even say, I'm sinless. I don't deserve this. I shouldn't be here. I didn't do anything wrong. No, he hung there and he bled for my sins, my punishment. That should have been. He did not speak. He didn't try to save his life. From 1939 to 1941, the German military offensive, they were very successful. And there were loudspeakers throughout the city of Essen. And, and as they began to, to advance on the eastern front and advance on the western front throughout the city, they would say, hey, we've got another victory. We've just conquered Belgium. We've just conquered France. I England, they're on the brink of disaster. We're, we're going in those loudspeakers right, right, right beside that old burned out synagogue. They were going and they were going in that synagogue just stood there speechless. Above the entrance, you could still read, my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. But the building, it didn't say anything. It was just waiting for the day. Just waiting for the day that it would preach a message of hope. And at the moment of Christ's death, certainly there must have been jubilation down with Satan and his demons. They, they had muted the voice of the God-man. He, he couldn't speak anymore. He couldn't go into the temple and, and, and cast out the money changers and get everything straightened out. No, <clears throat> he was silent now. They had, they had cut his voice off. He wasn't going to speak anymore. On the cross, he, he didn't humiliate them like he did whenever he cast the, the demoniac, all those demons into the, into the swine there in Gadara. No, he wasn't going to humiliate them. They thought that forever now he was going to be silent. They hadn't seen what John was going to see in the vision in Revelation 19. Look at this picture. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and that with it he should smite the nations they didn't know about that yet. They, they saw that Savior on the cross that wasn't saying anything. They, they saw after he was dead, he's not going to say anything. They didn't know that one day he was going to come with a sharp sword in his mouth. They thought that they had victory. They didn't know what the writer of Hebrews would go on to say in Hebrews 9 and verse number 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. 
But guess what? The second time, he's not going to be manifested in flesh. He's gonna, we're going to see his, his glory, and it's going to blow our minds, church. We're going to see the fullness of his salvation. It says, without sin unto salvation. The demons didn't know that. They just saw that silent Savior. They saw the cross as a place of shame. But they didn't know what Paul was going to say, that Paul saw that cross in just a little bit different of a light. In 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 25, he says, But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews it's a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks it's foolishness. But unto them which are called. That's you, church. That's you. You're the called. You've been called out from the world. You've been called out from the scourge of sin and death. Unto the called. What is that cross? It's Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. That's what the cross is. They saw that cross as their greatest victory. But what did we see it as? Oh, no, Satan, that's not your victory. That's my victory. That's blood that's being shed. You think it's coming out of him? You think the life is coming out of him? No, the life is coming into me, the the saving work of Jesus Christ. They couldn't foresee the resurrected Savior who would preach the greatest message of salvation ever preached. They thought they had won. They thought the battle was over. The temple was silent. But then we come into the third phase of our story. Because the synagogue, it continued on in silence. Those loudspeakers rang out, more victory We're promoting Nazi ideology. We've got the concentration camps going. It's victory after victory for Hitler. But Germany became a much different place after the U.S. joined the Allied war effort. What began to happen was is those cities in Germany who once felt so safe were now, they were consistently bombed by U.S. and British bombers and Due to the fact that Essen was in the industrial heartland of Germany, they had factories for armaments of war. They were on the target for those bombing raids. The lack of properly guided bombs and then the fact that that Eisenhower and the rest of them, they just wanted that war over as quickly as possible. meant that that whenever a city was to be bombed, that they were going to do the best they could to go after that factory, but they were just going to drop as many tons of bombs as they could and just hope that it fell in the right place. And so one particular night, the residents of Essen were subjected to this horror. Whole neighborhoods and districts of the city were completely set ablaze by these bombs. Men, women, and children ran out of their burning homes. They ran into the streets looking somewhere for safety. Where can I find safety? They they ran through narrow streets trying to find refuge from the fire, trying to find a place of protection. But there was only one place of protection a large, domed, burnt-out synagogue. That night, hundreds would find refuge in the synagogue of Essen. That synagogue that was silent. A synagogue that didn't say anything at all. Now, that synagogue began to preach a sermon. That synagogue opened up the old scrolls to Zechariah chapter 12 and verse number 10. And it showed them that now they had finally set their eyes on him whom they had pierced. But instead of seeing a man who was ready to retaliate, that's what I would want to do if they finally looked at me. I would want to retaliate. But instead of seeing a man who was ready to retaliate, they saw a man, a temple that had been torn down, but had been resurrected in three days. They saw a temple that provided refuge. The context of Zechariah chapter 12 is, is God calling out to his rebellious, stiff-necked children. It shows us the consequences of disobeying God. Israel is in a very precarious state here in Zechariah. Chapter number 10 says that they're going to be scattered all over. 
But hear the words of God to his people in Zechariah 10 and 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them again to place them for I have mercy upon them. And they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am the Lord their God and I will hear them. How can God have compassion on those people? Those people who had turned against him. Those people who had served their idols. Who had turned away from God. Whom God had to punish again and again and again as we saw in the book of Judges. Why did God have compassion on them, the very inhabitants of Jerusalem, who would one day be the ones who would be essentially guilty for hanging Jesus upon the cross? Why would God show compassion towards them? Zechariah tells us, I'm the Lord their God. I'm going to have mercy upon them. They didn't deserve mercy. They didn't deserve refuge in their time of trouble. And yet God... That's what he gave to them. As John writes in his gospel, the crucifixion account, he gives us this very same phrase that we read in Zechariah 12 and 10. In John 19, 34 through 37, he says this, But one of the soldiers with the spear pierced his side, and forthwith there came out blood and water. And he saw that it bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true that he might believe. For these things were done that the scriptures might be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The one who was pierced now offers protection. But why a cross, you would ask? Why the shame? Why, why crystal not? Couldn't, couldn't this all have been done in a more agreeable fashion? We're, we're civilized individuals. Why did this have to be so bloody? Why did it have to be so gory? Why did it have to be this way? Consider this. If that synagogue had not already been burned, then that night it would have been burning just like every other building in that city and there would have been no refuge for those people to find. And in order for our sins to be atoned for, there had to be a sacrifice that was already made. Hebrews 9 and 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. If you got to, to, to the judgment seat and God began to work and there had been no cross, there had been no bloodshed, guess what? It's going to be your blood now that is required of you. Blood was required for the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. One of the safest places in the middle of a wildfire is to be somewhere that has been already burned. And let me tell you tonight, the safest place to be when you stand before God in judgment, is going to be hidden under that blood. Do you want to be an overcomer? Oh yeah, I want to be an overcomer, Brother Justin. Well, guess what? You've got to have the blood of the Lamb. You've got to have the blood of the Lamb. There's no overcoming without the blood. There's no standing before God without the blood. Do you want to stand in confidence before the Lord? You've got to be washed. You've got to be washed in that blood. That's the only way, church. He He's the only remedy. He's the only place of refuge. He's the temple. He said I was going to be torn down, but in three days I'm going to arise, and now you can run to that temple. There's safety there. There's safety there. It's your only hope for survival. You, you can't escape the flames of God's judgment on sin. It's terrifying. Can you imagine how terrifying it must have been to be 
in the middle of one of those bombing raids, to be sitting there with your small children. Can you imagine what it must have been like not knowing if the next one that you hear coming down is going to score a direct hit right over you and your family? How terrifying that must have been. I, there, there are, there's a, um, a man who has this podcast. His name is Dan Carlin, and he goes into all these historical accounts, and he talks about where would the most frightening place on earth be in, in, in any kind of history. Can you imagine just to be sitting there? You can't do anything. You can't run anywhere. All you're doing is sitting and waiting and hoping that that bomb doesn't come and, and kill you and your family. How terrifying that must have been. As terrifying as that must have been, there's nothing that's going to be more terrifying than standing before God without the blood. There's nothing, church, that's more terrifying. You can think of the greatest fear in your life and multiply that by by any, any number. There is nothing that is going to be more terrifying than if you're standing before the creator of the universe and you tried to do it your way. You tried to find your own way, your own path to righteousness. No, there's only one path. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No man is going to come to the Father but by me. There's no other way, church. There's no other way. One day the mercy of God is going to come to an end and all will have to stand before him. Hebrews 10, 29 through 31 in the ESV says it like this. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Satan does not want you to know that that verse is in your Bible. Because here's what society tells us. They try to say, well, God is all love. God is all compassion. God is all mercy. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God if you haven't been covered by that blood. Church, you've got to know that verse. You've got to live every day with that verse in mind. God, I don't want to fall into your hands and not have that blood on my life. I don't want to fall into your hands and have some hidden sin in my life that I haven't taken to the altar, that I haven't laid down here and said, I don't want any more of it. You paid too great a price for me to live with sin in my life. I've got to go to the deep end. I've got to give myself and consecrate myself to the work of what Jesus has done. You do not want to fall into the hands of a living God without the blood. You can't. Please, please hear me tonight. You you have not gone too far from the grasp of the loving God. You may, we all can say that we have trampled Christ underfoot. You may be guilty of burning down that synagogue yourself. But please hear me. Please hear me. The synagogue still stands. It still stands. Even though those bombs are falling, even though the entire city is on fire, there's a place of refuge to run to. There's still a house that stands. There's still a temple that you can go to. Oh, Jesus. It may be burned out. It may not look as beautiful as it once did. It may have some some nail prints in his hand, some nail prints in his foot. There may still be a scar on his side, but you can run to him. You can run to him with everything inside of you. You can run to him. It may not be what you have chosen, but it's what God has chosen. His body was broken so that you would not have to suffer eternal punishment for your sins. He took the shame. That song that we sang this morning, I'm, 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 I'm blanking for a moment, the, the Newsboys song about the love of God. It goes through all these contrasts. 
And it begins to talk about how that he was despised and I'm accepted. He was rejected and now I can stand before God. His spirit lives inside of me. He was despised so that I could be accepted. He took the shame. He took the blame. He bore the wrath. And now we have a temple that we can run to and find safety Here's what Satan thought. Satan thought he was putting our Savior to an open shame. But look at what Paul tells us in Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he spoiled them. And he made a show of them openly. The ESV says that he put them to shame. They thought they were putting him to shame. Oh no, he put them to shame. And he triumphed over them. He had victory through the cross. It wasn't Satan's victory. It was his victory. They thought that Christ was shamed, but but he made an open show. He triumphed over them. There There were no men reviling that synagogue the night of the bombing. They had walked by that that building so many times before that day and they thought, oh, what an ugly eyesore that is. We need to tear that thing down. We need to further the Third Reich. We need to, we have our our perfect Aryan race. We got to get rid of that kind of stuff. That has no place here. But they weren't saying that this evening. Now that those bombs are falling, they were saying, thank God that there's there's a building here that's already burned and now I can find a place of refuge They were too busy using its stone walls for their own safety. What was once an eyesore to the citizens of Essen was now their source of salvation. So why do we glory in the cross whenever men revile it? Because it's my place of salvation. Golgotha was the place of the greatest story of rejection, but it's also the place of the greatest story of redemption let the world mock. Let them, let them talk about my Savior. Let them go on and on and on and say, oh, what a weak, impotent man. The, the Greeks, they said, oh, well, we're going to serve Zeus. We're going to serve all these great Hercules. We're going to serve all these great, magic, majestic, powerful gods. What is Jesus? He came down to earth. Why would, why would God come down to earth? Why would God take on the same flesh that I have? That's ridiculous. And, and so Paul stood before them at the, at the, um, in Acts chapter, I believe it's chapter um, 18 and he says look let me tell you about that unknown God let me tell you about this this man this man Jesus Christ who was fully man who was fully God don't serve your pagan gods let me tell you about an old rugged cross I've found safety in that old rugged cross Jesus Christ and his work at Calvary have become my greatest Source of protection. Romans chapter 3 verses 24 through 25. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth to be a propitiation. That means a covering. He was a covering for me through faith in his blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. There's no covering church like the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no covering like the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing so sure in all of this world. Governments can fall. Economies can fall. That blood is never going to fail. It provides us a sense of peace that even though there may be rocky in life, we say, I'm holding on to that blood. I'm holding on to that promise because that is a sure foundation. Wilhelm Busch tells a story of one man in that synagogue on that, on that evening. And he said that man fell asleep there in that synagogue as the bombs fell because he felt this overwhelming sense of peace. At the end of the night, after all the bombs had been dropped, that old synagogue, that old reviled synagogue, that old burned out synagogue, it still stood. It was still there. Everything else wiped out. Everything else bombed out. Everything else burned out. That synagogue, still a place of refuge, still standing. 
There's coming a day, church, when nothing is going to stand in the presence of God. Every knee, the Bible says, is going to bow. Everyone who ridiculed Jesus, everyone who spit on him, both literally and metaphorically, everyone who took up the gas and took up the matches and went down and tried to burn that synagogue, everyone... Everyone who's been too busy to follow his commands. Everyone who tried to make their own path to morality. Every knee will bow. And in that moment, the only way to eternal life is to know that you have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. Because nothing is going to stand before him. I say nothing. One thing's going to stand. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the only way to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ is what Peter told them on the day of Pentecost. You got to repent. You got to be baptized in Jesus' name and you'll be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Do you want to stand in that day? We're going to bow before his greatness. We're going to bow before his power and his might. But do you want to stand at the end of that day? You've got to be washed in the blood of the Lamb because you can't pray enough You can't read your Bible enough. You can't donate enough money to the Salvation Army, the United Way, or whatever charity it might be. You can't do enough to buy your way into heaven. There's only one way. I said it before. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so what did we read all throughout Hebrews? He said, you got to see Jesus. you got to believe Jesus. And then you've got to obey Jesus. Because what did Jesus say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He said that unless a man has been born of the water and born of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven and so we've got to know what that verse means church that that's another one of those verses satan doesn't want you to know about and that's one of the most misconstrued verses in all of the bible you've got to know what john 3 and 5 means you've got to know because there's so much confusion what has satan done from genesis 3 onward he said did god really say that is that really what god meant whenever he he said said that you must be born of the water, you must be born of the Spirit. No, that's not really what he meant. You can just do this or you can just do that. You can you can follow this way or that way. No, church, there's only one way. You got to see him. You got to believe him. You got to obey him. You got to obey him. You must be born again. We don't hear much of the old time fire and brimstone preaching Anymore, But please hear this warning. The city there that you see that was part of my title screen there, that's the city of Dresden in Germany. And after two successive days of bombing raids, the, the weather patterns situated themselves just right to where this firestorm just materialized. And there were literally tornadoes of fire that went through that city. That city was was utterly decimated. You can see there in that picture, two and a half square miles of the city completely just wiped off the map. You can see a picture of that that statue there today, and that's like a parking lot now. There's there's nothing there. 30,000 people, that's almost half of the population of Dothan, died during that blaze. During that firestorm, the, the Germans ran out into the streets as they did in Essen. They, they tried to find a place of safety. Then there was a river there in that city, and they jumped in that river, many of them who were, who were feeling the heat of the flames, and they literally boiled to death in that river. But that doesn't even begin to compare to the terror that hell will contain. Those flames are going to burn, but you're going to be in complete darkness. There's going to be nowhere to run. There's going to be nowhere to hide. There's going to be no old synagogue of refuge there because God's judgment has been passed. Every sermon that you've ever heard is going to be played on repeat over and over and over in your mind for all eternity. Look, I'm not trying to scare you into serving God. I just want you to serve God with everything inside of you. But listen, hell's a great reminder that I want to live for God. It's not the only reason that I'm living for God, but it's, an, it's a reason that, that is in my mind. I, I don't want to be in that type of situation. I want to tell you 
that there's a temple that you can run to. There is a Savior who is waiting with open arms that you can run to. I want to open your eyes to your need of a Savior. I want to say, open your eyes. Satan has made you faint. He's made you weary. You got the live stream on. You're just streaming things into your mind, things that don't matter, whatever it may be. I want to shake you and open your eyes and say, there's bombs that are falling. There's fires that are going on right now. And one day there's not going to be a synagogue to run to. There's hope still tonight, church. It doesn't matter if you were part of the masses that shouted out, crucify him. It doesn't matter if you were the one who took the matches there that night to start the blaze in that synagogue. But one day when God's judgment comes, it's going to be too late. But tonight is not. Tonight is not too late. So run to him. Our musicians can come. There's peace in him. There's hope in him. There's life in him. And that's the sermon that that old synagogue is preaching to us here tonight. You can stand. I want to sing that song, Breathe on Me. Why? Because God's our refuge. Because I will say of the Lord, He's my strong tower, and He's still standing. He was reviled on that cross. Everyone, the soldiers, the, the chief priests, all of them, they reviled Him, but He still stands. He's still there. He's still the refuge that you can run to. The synagogue is is preaching a sermon to those who have trodden on Christ underfoot. That's all of us. The synagogue is preaching to the backslider that, that there's still time. You can still come to me. You can still run to me. There's still refuge here. The synagogue is, is preaching a message to the Christian that, that, that hasn't looked on Jesus, Hebrews 2, hasn't looked on him in a while, hasn't considered him in a while. Run to that synagogue. Run to that synagogue. Run like your life depends on it because it does. Run to Jesus. He is your refuge. He is that temple. These altars are open. I want to pray for you tonight, church. Lord, thank you. Oh, God, that you've still given us, Lord, another glimpse, God, of the hope Lord, that you have placed inside many of us. Lord, there's still hope here tonight, God. Lord, don't let us be too busy. Don't let us be too distracted, God. Don't let any hindrance, God, come into our minds. Lord, we got to be like that Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Lord, I've got to do everything I can to, to, to right now run after you, to follow after what you said. Lord, let that mindset be inside of us Lord don't let us be distracted by the temporary things of this world 2 Corinthians 4 we read it tonight don't let us be distracted let us look to the eternal the eternal God that refuge Lord that you have for us God let us run to it Lord with everything inside of us God minister Lord tonight through your word God use your word Lord to draw all men to you In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.